0: And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts any time you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Radio Days. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Here we feature mostly cop and detective shows, plus adventure, plus surprise, you never know. But it's the best from the golden age of radio, we'll guarantee that. For those of you who want non-stop crime buster and detective shows, you can now add 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to your podcast library. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. Brand new for 2023 and growing fast. Enjoy! <laughs> story you
2: are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima cigarettes, best of all king size cigarettes, brings you Dragnet on both radio
3: and television. You're
2: a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A woman reports the disappearance of her 30-year-old brother. He's been missing for only two days, but the manner of his disappearance was sudden, out of the ordinary. Your job? Investigate. Fatima, America's first, largest-selling blended cigarette.
3: Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation
2: with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action.
4: It was Wednesday, November 14th. It was overcast in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ed Jacobs, the boss is Captain Lorman, my name's Friday. We were on the way out from the office, and it was 8.56 a.m. when we got to the SNH Paper Company on 4th Street, the rear entrance.
5: Where do we find her, Joe? Upstairs? No,
4: main floor. She told me we'd find her in the timekeeper's office. She said it was near the back door entrance. We couldn't miss it.
5: Let's give a look down the corridor, huh? Maybe one of the workers can tell us. Yeah, right. Looks like some kind of an office there, doesn't it? Just beyond the time clock? Uh-huh. Let's see. Paymaster head timekeeper. Yeah, that's it. The door is locked, Ed. You want to wrap on the pay window? Yeah. Yes? Police officers, ma'am. We have an appointment with Miss Edith Tabor.
6: Oh, yes, officers. I'm Edith Tabor. Just a moment, please. I'll ring the buzzer. Just push on the door. All
5: right. Thank you, ma'am.
4: Go ahead, Ed. All right.
6: Are you the one I talked to on the phone, Sergeant Friday? Yes,
4: ma'am. That's right. This is my partner, Sergeant Jacobs. I How do you do? How do, you do? This is about your brother, Miss Tabor. Uh, Ralph Tabor, is that right?
6: Yes, that's right. I know there must be something wrong. Ralph's been gone since Sunday. No one's seen him, no one's heard from him. I'm worried sick about it.
5: Last time you saw him was on Sunday?
6: No, I didn't actually see him. I talked to him on the phone. We made a date for dinner. Ralph and I always have dinner together Sunday nights. It's about the only time in the week we do get to see each other.
4: I see. I believe you told me on the phone you already checked with most of his friends the places he'd
5: most likely be, is that right?
6: I've called everyone I can think of. No one's seen him.
5: Your brother's never done anything like this before, miss? Going off without telling anyone?
6: No, never. I'm very worried, Sergeant.
5: Can you think of any reason at all why he'd want to disappear of his own free will, I mean?
6: No. No reason in the world for it. He seemed perfectly all right when I talked to him on the phone Sunday. Everything was fine. We made a date for the movies Tuesday night. That was for last night. Picture downtown we wanted to see. He made a special point of it. I just know something must have happened. Mm-hmm.
4: I gather you know most of your brother's friends you've kept in fairly close touch with him, have huh?
6: you? Yes, we get together at least once a week, as I say. I'm four years older than Ralph. I've looked after him since we were kids. We've always been together, the last five or six years especially, ever since Mama died.
5: Your brother in a pretty stable mental condition, was he? No financial worries, nothing of that kind?
6: No, sir, nothing I know about.
4: And, uh... I'd like to double-check this information that you gave me on the phone, Miss Tabor. Mm-hmm. The name and address and his description, is Yes, right. sir. Mm-hmm. The full name, Ralph Lawrence Tabor, 14316 Maiden Street. Male, white American, occupation, interior decorator. Is that it?
6: Yes, that's right. right.
4: Height, 5 foot, 1155
5: pounds. Dark blonde hair, gray eyes, fair complexion. Birthmark on left side of neck.
6: Yes, that's all correct.
5: Your brother in the habit of carrying large sums of money around with him, do you know?
6: No, not that I know of. He has a good job. He's not getting rich at it, though. I don't think I've ever seen Ralph with more than $20, $30 on him at a time. mm
4: mm-hmm. Who was the last person to see him, miss? You any idea?
6: Well, I talked to Ralph's landlady. She told me she saw Ralph and this friend of his, Andy Howard, going into Ralph's apartment. That was about 6 o'clock Sunday night. Ralph was supposed to meet me at 7.30, never showed up.
4: Now, this friend of your brother's, Miss Tabor, this Andy Howard, are you acquainted with him?
6: Yes, but I don't know him too well. I only met him two or three times. He lives in the apartment house next door to Ralph's, so the two of them were friends in the Navy together during the war. Good friends.
5: You tried to get in touch with this Andy Howard?
6: Yes. I called Ralph's apartment when he didn't show up for our dinner date Sunday night. There wasn't any answer, so I looked up Andy's number in the phone book and called him.
4: Mm -hmm. Was he at home?
6: Yes. Tried to talk to him, but it didn't do much good. Strange.
4: How's
6: that? He pretended he didn't even know me. After we
4: finished our interview with Edith Tabor, Ed Jacobs and I started out to double-check with all the known friends and associates of her brother. We talked to his employer and the people he worked with. None of them had seen him subsequent to 6 o'clock Sunday night. None of them could think of any good reason why he suddenly would want to pick up and leave his job and friends. The people he knew outside of his work told us the same thing. Nobody could explain it. Along the way, we inquired about Ralph Tabor's friend, Andy Howard. Most of the people we talked to knew him as a close friend of Tabor's. We checked at Howard's place of employment, but they told us he hadn't shown up for work since the previous Friday. We drove to Howard's apartment, checked with the manager, and he said that Howard had moved without notice late Sunday night. We crossed over to the apartment house next door, where Tabor lived, and talked to the landlady and Mrs. Higby. She corroborated the story we'd gotten from Tabor's sister that Andy Howard was last seen entering Tabor's apartment at about 6 o'clock Sunday night. Tabor was with him. Mrs. Higby was sure of that. She showed us up to the third floor to Ralph Tabor's apartment. The two rooms and the adjoining kitchenette were immaculate. There wasn't a thing out of place.
5: Need us a pin, Joe, not a thing out of order.
4: Yeah, it's the same in the bedroom. Say, Mrs. Higby.
7: Yes, Sergeant.
4: Do you provide maid service with the apartments here?
8: No, we don't. We've been thinking about it, though. Haven't quite made up our minds. Such a task, getting good, competent help these days. And the
5: tenants are responsible for the entire upkeep, huh?
8: Yes. Everything but painting, wallpapering, things like that. Doesn't Mr. Tabor keep things spotless? Just spotless?
4: Yes, ma'am. There's just one thing I wanted to ask you about. It's over here by the window. Yes. Now, this wire here, apparently an aerial connection for a television set. Looks like Yes, big.
8: Mr. Tabor does have a television. Why?
4: Well, I don't notice a set anywhere in the apartment. Would you happen to recall if he sent it out for repairs, anything like that?
8: No, not that I know of. Besides, this doesn't seem like Mr. Tabor at all. What
5: do you mean, Miss Higby?
8: Well, he's always so neat, fastidious. The end of that wire there. Looks like it was torn off the connection, doesn't it? Along the windowsill, too. Isn't that terrible? Fasteners for the wire ripped right out of the woodwork. That certainly doesn't seem like Mr. Tabor.
4: Mm-hmm. Anyone else besides him have access to this apartment, ma'am?
8: No one that I know of. No one besides myself. I mean, I have duplicate keys to all the apartments. Well, I just happen to think. Yes, ma'am? If a repairman did move to set out, it's possible my houseboy might know about it. Sam. That's my houseboy.
5: How would he know about it?
8: Well, it's a rule of the house, all furniture, heavy things like that. They have to be taken down in the freight elevator. It opens right onto the alley in the back of the building. It's very handy.
4: Yes, ma'am.
8: Sam's the only one who operates that elevator. That's why I say it's possible he might know about it. Would you like to have me ask him?
4: I wonder if you would, please.
8: Surely it won't take but a minute, and I'll be right back.
5: Thank Thank you, Miss Higgins. Joe, you want to have a look over here? Yeah. What do you got? This wall bed here. I tried to pull it down. It's stuck. Stand right here. Oh, over here. Mm-hmm. See if you notice anything. Yeah, I do. You want to give me a hand, see mm-hmm. if we can't get the
4: bed down? Yeah. Right. Push in on your side, then. Okay. That's it. Okay. It's
5: coming down now. Good Lord. Yeah. Tabor, you think? The description seems to fit. Beaten to death looks like, doesn't it? Something sticking out under the bed
4: covers there. Yeah, it's a claw hammer. Stains all over it.
5: Vicious. Guess a killer wanted to make sure. It's one of the worst I've seen. Feel sorry for the sister. She was pretty close to him. It's gonna be tough on her. No tougher than it was for him. 2:38 p.m.
4: We phoned the office, told him what we'd found, and then we put in a call for Lieutenant Lee Jones and the crime lab crew. While we were waiting, we questioned the landlady again, Mrs. Higby. She said her houseman, Sam, told her he knew nothing about a television set being moved out of Ralph Tabor's apartment. However, it was possible somebody could have taken the set down in the main elevator late at night without being seen. Mrs. Higby also told us that Tabor had a car. We checked the apartment garage, but it was gone. All Mrs. Higby could tell us was that it was a late model car and that Tabor often loaned it to his friend, Andy Howard. Sergeants Al Shambra and Joe LaMonica from Homicide arrived, and together the four of us interviewed the employees and the tenants in the apartment building. They gave us little or nothing at all. A few minutes before 3 p.m., the crime lab crew showed up and started their preliminary investigation. We put in a call for the coroner. From the obvious lack of fingerprints in usual places around the apartment, it was apparent that the murderer had taken great precautions to cover his tracks. 3.35 p.m., the deputy coroner arrived, and after the preliminary investigation was finished, the body was removed to the county morgue. Ed and I went back to the office, checked our DMV, and got out on all points on Tabor's car and also on the friend he was last seen with, Andy Howard. R and I turned up a single entry for Howard's criminal record, a drunk driving charge. 5.20 p.m., we met with Edith Tabor and broke the news of her brother's death.
5: When she recovered from the shock, we interviewed her briefly.
6: It was Andy Howard. I know it was him. It had to be.
5: Why do you say that, Miss Tabor? There's something about this man Howard you haven't told us?
6: He's no good, Sergeant. He's no good at all. That's what I've been afraid of. I've been afraid of it right along.
5: Well,
9: just
6: how do you mean, ma'am? He's no good. He's a tramp, a bum. won't get a job. He's been living off my brother. He isn't normal. There's something wrong with him.
4: Well, how is it your brother put up with him?
6: Well, I told you, he and Ralph were friends in the Navy. He did a big favor for Ralph once. He's been living off it ever since. Taking his clothes, borrowing his car, money, never paying it back.
5: Why do you think he killed your brother, miss?
6: I just know it. That's all. He did it.
5: He ever fight with your brother? Would you happen
4: to know? Did he ever threaten him?
6: They had a big fight one night, about two weeks ago, I think. Andy kept sponging until Ralph got good and sick of it. Told Andy to go out and get a job. That's when the fight started.
4: You saw it, did you?
6: Ralph told me about it. Fist fight in the alley back of the apartment. Ralph knocked Andy down. Andy said he'd never forget it. He'd pay Ralph back. A couple of days after that, my brother said the two of them made up. Everything was all right. Ralph should have known better. He should have known better. Mm
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, just a few more questions, Miss Tabor. Can you tell us anything about Andy Howard's background, where he's from, whose friends are, places he usually goes?
6: No. I didn't know much about him. He's from the south, I think, Alabama. Ralph's friends can tell you more about him than I can.
4: All right. Had you heard anything lately about Howard planning to move out of his apartment?
6: No, nothing. When I heard that he did move and Ralph was missing, I knew something was wrong. That's why I called you... If I'd only known before. Poor Ralph, if I only knew.
4: Well, try to take it easy, ma'am. We'll arrange for a car to drive you home, all right?
6: It's so hard to understand. It's hard for anyone to kill Ralph like that horrible. He was so good. He was my brother. Yes,
5: ma'am.
6: What do you say to a man who kills your brother? How do you understand him? What do you tell him?
10: Well, why even try?
6: What?
4: Let the jury tell him before we had the victim's sister edith Tabor, driven to her home we asked her about the television set in her brother's apartment but she was unable to explain its absence burglary detail had already been notified about the case and the pawn shop detail alerted an apb had been gotten out containing a complete description of the tv set along with the serial numbers a few minutes after we got back from dinner that night we had an answer on it a pawn shop operator on West 7th Street called in with the information that he'd taken in a television set with identical description and serial numbers as that of Tabor's. Ed and I drove out to the pawn shop and checked the operator's buy book. The set had been pawned the day after the murder. The serial numbers and description matched in every detail. The description and signature of the man who pawned it matched perfectly with that of Ralph Tabor's friend, Andy Howard. The set was impounded, and just on a chance, we had Dean Bergman dust it for latent fingerprints.
5: Dean? Oh, hi, Ed Friday. How you making out, any luck? Not bad. Have a look here. Yeah. Picked up four sets of prints off it, all told. These here are the dead man's. Yeah. These here, they belong to the pawn shop operator. Mm Mm-hmm. These belong to his son, helps him in the shop. Yeah. Guess this is the one you're looking for. Two clean index prints. Did you classify them? Checked them against prints from Andrew Howard's package. Yeah. They match. When we checked in for work the following
4: morning, we got the coroner's report on Ralph Tabor. Cause of death was listed as cerebral hemorrhage and multiple fractures of the skull caused by blows from a heavy blunt object. The other reports from the crime lab didn't give us much help. The better part of the next three days, Ed and I, along with Al Shambra and Joe LaMonica, held detailed interviews with the known friends and associates of the murder victim, Ralph Tabor, and the number one suspect, Andy Howard. The information we picked up was incorporated in a supplementary all-points bulletin and gotten out immediately. We found out that Andy Howard had a sailor's uniform in his possession, and though unauthorized, he wore it frequently. It bore the insignia of a quartermaster first class on the sleeve. We also found out Howard had identical tattoos on each forearm, the picture of an unfurled American flag with the name Betty D. below it. We had the city covered for the suspect. Four days passed. No trace of him. Saturday, November 24th, we got an urgent call from Homicide Commander Lieutenant Mort Gear in San Diego.
5: On the highway? Uh Uh-huh. When was that, Mark? I see. Uh. Hey, Joe, you got a pencil there? Yeah, here you go. Thanks. Hey, Mark, he's pretty sure, huh? Uh Uh-huh. Well, yeah, he seems to tie in all right. How's that? Well, I don't know for sure. We'll check with Captain Lorman right now and let you know. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Goodbye. Good break. What do you have to say? One of their traffic men down there, a fellow by the name of Jack Ladd, stopped a car on the highway going out of town speeding. Yeah. That says a man answers Andy Howard's description perfectly. Uh-huh. Right down to the tattoo on the forearm. No doubt about the car the guy was driving was Tabor's description and license number. He even mm-hmm. used Tabor's identification. When did all this happen? A day after the murder. They would have held a man, but they didn't have the information at the time. It's a bum break. Which way was Howard going, did they tell you? Yeah, into town. They figure he's still there someplace. What do you mean? Found the car an hour ago, abandoned. <laughs> Ten minutes after the phone call from San Diego,
4: Captain Lorman checked back in at the office, and Ed and I met with him. We told him about the information San Diego had phoned in, and he gave Ed and I an immediate okay for the trip south. We went down to the garage, picked up a car, and six hours later, we checked in with Sergeant Russ Ormsby, San Diego Homicide.
11: What's this, another fishing trip, or are we doing business this time? i afraid it's all business, Russ, the Andy Howard thing. More gear around? No, I won't be back till later. I can brief you on it, though. McGuire and I have been working it on this end. Well, how about Tabor's car? You still got it staked out? Yeah. No nibbles yet. What do you figure? If nothing happens, pull it in tomorrow, process it for prints? Yeah. We've had something warmer than that since Gear called you. It looks pretty good. Yeah, what do you got? Only came up with it a couple of hours ago. Field interrogation card made out last night, West End of town. Mm hmm. Beat officer by the name of Driscoll questioned a man and a girl parked in a car out that way last night. There's a description on the man. Oh, Thanks, right Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fitz Howard all the way, Ed, here. Mm. So, couldn't get much closer. We checked out the car they were in. Belongs to the girl. Yeah. Look here, Ed. He's still using Tabor's identification. Yeah. All right, where's it go from here, Russ? You got this Andy Howard spotted? No. Beatman Driscoll, he didn't know the guy from Adam. Yeah, well, where's that Lavis? The girl Howard was with. Driscoll knew her. We contacted the beat officer, Driscoll. The girl
4: who'd been spotted sitting in a parked car the night before with murder suspect Andy Howard was identified as Helen McClung, a waitress in a downtown cocktail bar. A stakeout was placed in her apartment, and she was brought in for interrogation.
8: Well, he's not a good friend of mine. I don't know where he lives. Don't know what he does. I hardly even know him, Sergeant. You were
11: out for a drive with him night before last night, right?
8: Sure, I don't deny that. We went out for a ride. That's all there is to it.
11: You sure you don't know where this man lives, Helen?
8: Not exactly, no. He's staying at a hotel downtown, I think. We went for a ride, and I dropped him off at the bus line. That's all there was to it.
11: Do you expect to see him again?
4: you have any dates with him in the next couple of days?
8: No. Tell you the truth, I thought I had a date. Didn't work out. Nothing ever works out. Phone this morning, called it off. You tell you why? I gave some lame excuse. I found out the real reason, though.
11: What's that? Do you mind telling us?
8: No, I don't mind. Got a date with my girlfriend instead. Claire Peterson. Burned me up a little, but I don't mind.
11: Well, where's your girlfriend
4: live, Helen?
8: You mean Claire? Out on Rose Avenue, 1500 block. I'm not sure, though.
4: Is he going to pick her up there?
8: I guess so, why?
4: When's the date for, no? you know?
8: Yeah, on my night.
3: You are
2: listening to Dragnet. Authentic stories of your police force in action. Compare Fatima with your present king-size cigarette. Yes, compare Fatima with the king-size cigarette you are now smoking. One... Fatima's length filters the smoke 85 millimeters for your protection. Two, Fatima's length cools the smoke for your protection. Three, Fatima's length gives you those extra puffs, 21% longer than standard cigarette size. And in Fatima, you get an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of Fatima quality. Friends, to show our confidence in Fatima... To convince you quickly, dramatically that Fatima is the best of all king-size cigarettes, we make this money-back guarantee. Buy a pack of Fatimas. Enjoy Fatima quality, extra mildness, and superbly blended tobaccos. If you're not convinced Fatima is better than the king-size cigarette you're now smoking, just return the pack and the unsmoked Fatimas before April 1st, and we'll give you your money back plus postage. Fatima, Box 37, New York 1.
8: Remember. Each king-size Fatima gives you an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of Fatima quality.
2: Switch to Fatima today. Best of all king-size cigarettes.
4: Monday, November 26th, 10 a.m. After checking her name through San Diego R&I, we finally located the address of the girl Claire Peterson, who was supposed to have a date with our murder suspect Andy Howard that night. She lived in a small apartment house in the southeast end of town. The manager told us that she'd already left for work. We ran it down. The Peterson girl was employed as a cutter in a shirt factory down in the industrial district. We questioned her at her work. A tall, attractive girl, blonde, blue eyes, a small scar on her chin.
5: She kept working while we talked to her.
8: Yeah, I have a date with Ralph Tabor tonight. Something the matter?
5: I'm afraid so, Miss Peterson. The first place. His name isn't Ralph Tabor. No,
8: I'm sorry. You must be wrong, officer. I was out with him just last Monday. I know that's his name, son, everything he has. His car, his wallet, all his business papers. I guess you must have made a mistake.
4: No, it's no mistake, ma'am. We checked it out pretty thoroughly. We'd like to talk to you about him if we could, please.
8: Well, there's not too much to tell. I just met him Monday night. He was with my girlfriend, Helen. He wanted to go out with me, so I made a date. I didn't think there was anything
5: wrong. You said he was to meet you at your apartment, Miss Peterson. Did you give any specific time when he'd be there?
8: Eight or eight-thirty, he said. Hey, what's wrong, do you know? There's something wrong with a man I ought to know, don't you think?
4: We want him for questioning, ma'am. You any idea where he lives?
8: No, I haven't. One of the hotels downtown, I think. Fifth Street or Sixth Street, I wouldn't know for sure. What do you want him? Can't you tell me, please?
5: We believe he's committed a murder, Miss Peterson. Matter of fact, we're sure of it.
8: What do you want me to do?
5: If he calls up before your date tonight, don't do anything to discourage him. Tell him to meet you. If he wants to postpone the date, try and make him come tonight. If he can't do that, try and find out where he's staying. Don't let him know we talked to you.
8: Well, all right, I can try. You'll be there when he comes to my apartment, I mean.
5: Yes, ma'am, we'll be there. You'll be protected all the way.
8: What do you do?
4: Ma'am?
8: What do you do? You say he's a murderer. He must be desperate. What do you do? How do you arrest him? It's
4: his choice, ma'am, any way he wants it. As soon as we left the plant where the Peterson girl worked, we called Sergeant Tony McGuire at San Diego Homicide Detail, and he made arrangements for an immediate stakeout at the girl's apartment. At 7 p.m., Ed and I, along with Russ Ormsby and Tony McGuire, drove out to supplement the men on stakeout at the girls' apartment. 8 o'clock, 9, 9.30, 10 p.m., still no sign of the suspect. At midnight, our relief team showed up and we headed back for the office. When we got there, there was a bulletin from the highway patrol reporting that earlier that night, a man partially identified as Andy Howard had been seen heading north from San Diego on U.S. Highway 101 toward Los Angeles. We got Captain Lorman on the phone, briefed him on the latest developments, and told him that photographs of the suspect had been distributed to all officers. The next 10 hours failed to turn up anything new. San Diego officers continued to cover their end. 11.15 p.m. the next day. We drove back to Los Angeles and reported in at homicide. There was a note in the book from Lorman asking us to check in early the following morning, so Ed and I signed out and went home to get some sleep. The next morning, 1.45 a.m., Hello, Friday talking.
11: Sorry to wake you up, Friday.
2: This is Hawkins down the
4: business office. Oh, yeah, Hawkins. What do you got?
7: Beat Officer out in Wilshire called in two or three minutes ago. He figures he has your
4: murder suspect for you, Andy Howard. Bring him in now. Well, what about identification? He checked that over?
9: No, no identification. He's wearing a sailor's
4: uniform. What about insignia? His rating. Bordermaster first class. <laughs> After I hung up, I phoned Ed, got him out of bed, and the two of us drove down to the office where we picked up the suspect and took him to the interrogation room. During the interrogation, we found a wallet concealed on his person. It contained a driver's license, credit card, and half a dozen other means of identification. All of them were made out to Ralph Tabor. After an hour of questioning, he'd still admit nothing. He sat hunched over in his chair, tearing an old envelope into small pieces and dropping them on the floor in
9: front of him. This will make the tenth time I told you. I don't know what happened to Ralph. I didn't take his car or his television set. I didn't leave the city. I wasn't in San Diego last week. Now, if you don't believe me, you'll prove I'm lying. We didn't pull you in on the guess, Andy. We'll prove it. You mind telling me how? We got three people on
4: their way in here right now. Ralph Tabor's sister, his landlady, a man by the name of Sims, pawn shop dealer.
9: Mean anything to you? My word against theirs. Three to one, mister. I got the odds in our favor. Look, why don't we straighten this out once and for all? You think I killed my friend Ralph. Why? Explain it to me. Why should I kill him? Look, I wouldn't know, Andy. Maybe you'd like to tell us. His sister says he was pretty good to you. She was good to me. I guess she didn't tell you what I did for him overseas when we were in the Navy together. No, she didn't tell us. She wouldn't. Stupid women. I haven't found one of them worth anything. Frustrated. She needs a husband. That's her trouble.
4: She claims her brother was paying the bills for you, Andy. He gave you clothes, money, his car. She says you were living off of him.
9: Lousy woman, that's all the thanks I get for all I did for Ralph. I borrowed a few dollars, yeah, that's all. Kept throwing it up to me, him and his sister, after all I did for him. What are you trying to say, Andy? Could have been different, Ralph and me. What do you want me to say? Did you kill him? Did you kill him, Andy? You can't explain it that way. It's not as simple as that. Didn't? No, it's all. Mixed up together is complicated, It's not simple at all. I mean, with your best friend especially, it's more of a mistake. I mean, morally, I didn't mean to kill him. I just did. It's a mistake. A terrible mistake.
5: You want to give us a statement,
9: Howard? Stenographer, I'll take it down. Oh yeah, all right, in a minute. Just want to make sure you understand. I mean, about Ralph and all I did for him. Yeah. No no gratitude, no gratitude at all. You blame me? I I mean, after all I did for him, you blame me? Well, you should have remembered,
4: Andy, about gratitude. Yeah? Doesn't mean much when you have to ask for it.
12: The story you have just heard was true the names
2: were changed to protect the innocent. On February 4th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 89, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. And now, here is our star, Jack Webb.
4: Thank you, George Fenneman. Friends, you've been listening to Dragnet for the past 28 minutes. Now, it'll take you less than 28 seconds to prove that Fatima is the best of all king-size cigarettes. Just compare Fatima with a king-size cigarette you're now smoking. Fatima filters the smoke through a long distance of 85 millimeters. Fatima's length cools the smoke for your protection. Fatima's length gives you those extra puffs, 21% longer than standard cigarette size. And in Fatima, you get an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of Fatima quality. Prove it today. By Fatima. <laughs>
2: Andrew Thomas Howard was tried and convicted of murder in the second degree. He is now serving his term in the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. Second degree murder is punishable by imprisonment from five years to life. Ladies and gentlemen, right now, inflation is America's number one menace on the home front. It's the one enemy that can lick America. We can help prevent this by working harder, working better. The fight against inflation will succeed only if all of us get behind it. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the Office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Heard tonight were Barney Phillips, Joyce McCluskey, and Virginia Gregg. Script by Jim Moser. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king size cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Next, it's David Harding and Counter Spy on NBC. Ladies and gentlemen,
13: due to technical difficulties beyond our control at the moment, the Dragnet program, originally scheduled at this period, Has been postponed temporarily. It will be heard in just a few
12: moments.
0: This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan.
10: My name is Ed, Ed Jacobs, Jacobs. The boss is, the boss is Captain is Steve. Steve. My name, my is name Friday. Is Friday. We're on the We're way out way from the, the office. office. It was 10.38 a.m. when we got to Paris Avenue.
14: Number
7: 213.
14: Yes? How do you do, Miss Wagner? Police officers. I'm Sergeant Jacobs. This is my partner, Sergeant Friday.
7: Oh, yes, Sergeant. I've been expecting you. Would you come in, please? Thank you
14: very much. Thank you.
7: Hope you'll excuse the way the house looks, officers. Right in the middle of packing, getting ready to move.
14: I understand. I'll try not to keep you, Miss Wagner.
7: So much to do, making arrangements for Dorothy's funeral, the undertaker. and all this moving business on top of it. I couldn't bear to stay here any longer, though.
10: Yes, ma'am, we understand. We'll make it as brief as we can. I'd like to have you tell us about this trouble that your sister had, as much as you know about it, I mean.
7: Plain out-and-out murder, in my opinion. Might just as well have taken a gun and killed her, no difference.
10: You knew all about the relationship between your sister Dorothy and this man Reynolds, is that correct?
7: Yes, right from the beginning. I was there when they met. Would you mind if I went ahead packing these few things here? My sister's things. I'd like to finish up before I leave. Have an appointment at noon, the mortuary.
14: Surely go right ahead. A
7: few books, knick knacks, personal things to Dorothy's. Foolish woman. I gave her credit for more sense.
10: Now, about this man, Reynolds, Miss Wagner... I
7: saw through him right from the start. I tried to tell Dorothy. He was a fortune hunter, money hungry. Of course, she wouldn't listen. She always knew better.
14: Charles R. Reynolds, is that the name you knew him by, ma'am?
7: Yes, that's right. Dorothy and I met him one Sunday night in the hotel dining room. Two of us always had dinner at the hotel Sunday nights, every Sunday.
14: That's the hotel out on Wiltshire you told us about?
7: That's correct. It'll be exactly a month this coming Sunday came up to our table and introduced himself. Claimed he knew my father when he was alive. Dad owned some big packing plants in the East. Died nine years ago, left the estate to Dorothy and me.
10: I see. Would you have anything to add to the description that you gave us on Reynolds, Miss Wagner? I mean, can you think of anything unusual about him at all? Scars, peculiar mannerisms, anything like that?
7: No, nothing special. Dressed well, as I say. Apparently cultured, well-traveled.
9: Mm-hmm.
7: He was handsome enough, attractive. I knew it was only after our money, though. Playing up to Dorothy that way, kissing her hand, taking her out all the time. Probably would have tried the same thing with me. It's lucky I knew better.
14: How did you after the first meeting with him, Miss Wagner? Did he start dating your sister Dorothy right away?
7: Yes, the next night. Called here at our home and asked Dorothy to the theater. I think he was going to ask me, but he was too smart for that. I knew him for what he was. Hmm. Huh. Imagine that poems Dorothy wrote in high school. Love poems. Silly. She never did get it out of her head.
10: You and your sister lived alone here in the house, did you, ma'am?
7: Yes, Dorothy and I and the maid. I don't want to stay here after what's happened, though. I'm going to my cousin's in Vermont. Never want to see this place again.
10: Yes, ma'am. I can understand. How soon after you met Reynolds did he marry your sister?
7: A little over two weeks. He'd been seeing her... Almost every night, taking her out dancing to the theaters, big dinners, bringing her home late. and sit here in the living room. I could hear them from my bedroom upstairs laughing, him telling her how beautiful she was. 42-year-old woman, imagine that.
14: You're about the same age your sister was?
7: Just about. A little older. People always took us for twins, though. Here's a snapshot of me taken in my 20s. The boy with me there, he wanted to marry me. Our money, of course, that's all he wanted. Too bad. Dorothy never seemed to realize that about men. Girls from wealthy families, they have to be careful.
10: We understand Reynolds took your sister out of town to be married, is that right?
7: Yes, Las Vegas. Reynolds had told her his bank funds were tied up temporarily in a Canadian bank. He wrote Dorothy a check for $10,000, and she gave him her check for the same amount. He said he wanted to book reservations for a round-the-world trip for both of them. I see. The same day Dorothy gave him the check, he cashed it. The bank called her about it, and she said it was perfectly all right. An hour after he cashed it, Reynolds disappeared. No trace of him. Of course, his check's worthless. We found that out.
10: Mm Mm-hmm. You figure that's the only reason your sister took her own life?
7: There's no other reason. Wasn't the money so much. Dorothy has her share of the estate. It's a shame, I suppose. Awful shame. Disappointment. She should have known better a woman her age.
14: Had your sister ever been married before, Miss Wagner?
7: Yes. When she was 18, ran off to Chicago and married a young fellow. She claimed she loved him, too. Naturally, he was after our money. My father and I went and brought her home. We had the marriage annulled. It was that way all her life. Half a dozen men. They brought Dorothy nothing but misery. And this was the last, this Charles Reynolds.
10: How about his background, ma'am, his business connections? Has he ever mentioned any of that to you or your sister?
7: Claimed he had interests all over. South America, Australia. Seemed to have plenty of money. Guess his kind always has. Do you think you'll find him?
10: We're going to try, Miss Wanger.
7: Dorothy went upstairs to her bedroom and stayed there. She looked so strange. She took out some press flowers from a book. Some boy had given them to her once years ago. Don't know who. She just sat on the edge of her bed and stared at them. Old press flowers. Next morning, the maid came upstairs and Dorothy was lying on the floor. Empty bottle of pills next to her. Awful disgrace. Never happened before in our family.
10: Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, Miss Wagner, we'd like to get as many particulars about this man Reynolds as you can remember.
7: There. That's the last. I don't know what else to tell you, officer. All I know is I was young when Dorothy was young. I could have had a man if I wanted. But I didn't run off when I was 18 to marry a boy. I knew my duty. It wasn't proper. It wasn't a love. I didn't run off as a middle-aged woman to marry a fortune hunter either. What made her do it? I wouldn't know, ma'am. She was your sister. What kind of a man was he? What kind of a mind? Making love, kissing her, just to take her money. Imagine selling somebody with a kiss.
10: Well, it's not the first time, ma'am. Is that so? Look it up. You'll find it in the Bible. eleven eighteen AM. We continued to interview the victim's sister for another forty minutes, and then we left the Wagner home, drove back to the office, and continued our investigation of the suspect, Charles R. Reynolds. As far as we were concerned, the criminal was new to us, but the crime wasn't. The marriage racket's as old as any con game on earth, and as con games go, it's one of the lowest. It trades on one of the most natural and normal instincts a man or a woman has, a desire for companionship, a home, and a family. And for the sake of an easy dollar, it betrays the victim and the instinct ruthlessly, regardless of the consequences. In the case of 42-year-old heiress Dorothy Wagner, the disappointment was too much to cope with. For her, the marriage game ended in the front parlor of a mortuary on South Hoover Street. For the suspect, Charles Reynolds... It had continued to be a paying business until he was stopped. After homicide detail completed their investigation of the case, and it was definitely determined that Dorothy Wagner took her own life, the matter was turned over to us. 11.50 a.m., we got off a request to Las Vegas asking them for all the information on the marriage. and Then I contacted the stats office and asked them to make a run on the suspect for us based on his detailed description and also on his method of operation. I went back down the hall and met Ed Jacobs at the R&I counter.
14: How you doing? Not too much luck, Joe. Forger didn't come up with anything either. Nothing on him in their files. I mean, that's not much of a start, is it? Apparently, this is the first time he's worked the town. Or couldn't find anything on the name, not in the main file anyway. Mm-hmm. What do you got there? I asked John to check the correspondence file. He came up with this. Uh-huh. Out of Chicago, huh? yeah, He came in over three months ago. Inquiry from their bunco detail. Suspect name right here. Frank L. Richland. Yeah, same angle, Mary Draggett. Hmm? Yeah, the MO is
10: pretty close. Any description? Oh, well, here. What do you think? Six foot, 170 pounds, gray, wavy hair, blue eyes, fair complexion. Uh-huh. Well, that's fairly close, could be. Mm
14: hmm. Here's the alias list Richland uses, long as your arm. Here's one caught our eye Reynolds. Alias George A. Reynolds, Thomas R. Reynolds, alias C.H. Reynolds, alias Charles R. Reynolds. Wants on him for forgery, bunco, grand
10: theft. A lot of experience. How about a mugshot on this one?
14: Mm. None attached. No L.A. contacts either.
10: Well, we better get off a wire to Chicago PD, have them send us what they can on him. Want yeah. to prove it one way or the other by the end of the week, maybe, huh? Yeah.
14: Copy his name down
10: here. Uh-huh.
14: Frank L. Richland. Correspondence number C143732. Chicago case number. D-612-32. Attention, Lieutenant Smeichels. I am
10: just thinking, Ed.
14: Huh? The last time anyone saw Reynolds, when was it? Ten, twelve days ago? Ten days ago, yeah. September 23rd, same day, he cashed the check
10: and took the run out. Well, if he's working the city for the first time, he must figure he's had some fair luck. Ten thousand on the first try, that's pretty encouraging. Huh? If he gets the idea that the town's a gold mine, he's not going to pull out stakes here.
14: Hmm, figures probably trying to reach a couple of other women with the same angle. could be he's working on it now. Well, that's the problem. What do you mean? The women. Say he's been
10: romancing three or four of them around town.
14: He's got them all prime. huh How
10: are you going to warn a woman about a thief before her purse is gone? After getting off a wire to Chicago regarding the suspect, which was in addition to the broadcast and the APB we'd gotten out on him, Ed Jacobs and I continued checking out the various contacts that he'd made in the city. We checked stores where he shopped, banks where he allegedly did business, restaurants and hotels, which he reportedly patronized. It took three days of dull, steady legwork. You can say it much faster than you can do it. All of the bank references without exception were falsified. Where he made purchases, it was strictly cash dealing. The same for the restaurants he'd frequented. Besides meager descriptions of the man, the restaurant employees weren't able to help us much. At one of the two hotels... Where we learned he was a guest for a full month We finally netted half a lead One of the bellboys told us That the man known as Charles Reynolds Seemed to be pretty friendly With the head waiter in the hotel dining room A Henry Kingsbury We located Kingsbury in the dining room In mid-afternoon directing arrangements For a large private party to be held that night Across the dance floor The orchestra was on the bandstand rehearsing The musicians in their shirt sleeves Kingsbury was reserved not too cooperative
13: Yes, I was acquainted with Mr. Reynolds, no more than the other guests, though. That's not the way we get it, Mr. Kingsbury. We hear you were pretty friendly with him. Only as far as my job goes, that's my business, making people feel at home, making them comfortable.
10: We well, understand Reynolds was a pretty heavy tipper, is that right? He always took good care of me and the boys, the waiters, were very generous. Did he expect anything special in return for the tips that he gave you? I don't think
13: I understand. Oh, I think you do. How about it? Well, he was always very good to us, all of us. I could hardly refuse. Refuse what? When he first moved into the hotel, he became friendly with me, introduced himself, gave me a good tip in advance to take care of him. Mm. First few nights here, he spent at the cocktail bar, you know, meeting people, buying a few drinks, getting acquainted. Third or fourth night, uh, that's when he asked me. Yeah? He said when some prominent women came into the dining room, wealthy women, would I point them out to him? Single women, of course. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see any harm in it. He put a $20 bill in my hand. I said, yes, I would. After all, we'd have to look out for ourselves. Did he expect anything else for those tips? I don't know. I don't think it'd be right if I told you. You know, why we're here, Mr. Kingsbury, we leveled with him. We expect you to do the same with us. Well, there was the two Wagner sisters. They came here every Sunday night for dinner, regular routine for them. Yeah. Mr. Reynolds was at the bar. He asked who they were, and I told him he seemed impressed. He asked me to help with an introduction to them, and I did. Next afternoon, he came to me again. He said he was taking one of the Wagner sisters to dinner that night. It was important to him. He gave me another big tip. Said he wanted us to roll out the red carpet for him that night. Mm -hmm. What'd that consist of? Well, special consideration. The best treatment in the house, you know. I was to act as if I'd known him for years. Well, it was a good tip. I did what he asked. As I say, we have to look out for ourselves. Has this happened more than once today? Two or three times, yeah. Miss Wagner, uh, Dorothy Wagner, she seemed impressed. At the time, I didn't think anything was wrong with it. You actually didn't know Reynolds, is that right? You'd never seen him before. Well, I suppose, yes. I only found out later, though, reading the papers. I mean, what really happened. I didn't know what he was at the time. You couldn't see what Reynolds was up to? You didn't know what he was doing? No, naturally not. He was a good tipper, that's all I know. It was the money. We have to look out for ourselves. Yeah. I felt sorry about Miss Wagner. I went to the funeral. They couldn't say I'm to blame, could they? What happened? I mean, it's not on my conscience. You wouldn't say so, would you? She's dead, mister. You figure it. Thursday, October
10: 13th. The investigation continued. Still no sign of the suspect. We got an answer from Las Vegas and also from the Chicago PD's bunco Detail on our inquiries. They enclosed mug shots and fingerprint classification of the suspect, Frank Richland, alias Charles R. Reynolds. The pictures were shown to witnesses and acquaintances who'd known the suspect, and they definitely established Frank Richland and Charles Reynolds as one and the same person. We got out a supplementary APB containing the latest information on the suspect. Saturday, October 15, we got our second complaint on the marriage bunco artist, this time from the proprietress of a small chain of lunch counters in the San Pedro area, a Miss Hagar Lindstrom. Ed and I drove down to the harbor area where we interviewed her at one of her lunch counters. She identified Richland's mugshot. Her story of the Mary swindle matched closely with that of the previous victim, Dorothy Wagner.
15: Yeah, he was a fine gentleman, Mr. Jan Richland. I don't know what happened. They don't know what to say.
14: He told you he was from England, Miss Lindstrom, is that right?
15: Yeah, he talked like English, but he could speak good English, like from London or someplace. Says he builds boats, big ones. I beg your pardon, ma'am. Big boats. Oh, yes. He told me that's his business. He said he had lots of money. We would sail around the world on a honeymoon. Maybe he will come back still. I hope so.
10: I wouldn't count on that, Miss Lindstrom. Would you tell us this, please? How'd you happen to meet this man, Richland?
15: At the hotel up the street. The big hotel. A can show it to you. The one on Jackson Street. Yes, ma'am. They seemed to know he was a rich man. Nice clothes he wore. He spent money a lot. When we got married, he spent lots of money.
14: Where were you married, ma'am?
15: We went down to Mexico. One weekend, we went down there, and we got married. It was romantic. Very nice. If and Lars liked it.
5: Who's that, ma'am?
15: Lars. That's him down the counter there. Lars, my brother.
10: Oh, well, your brother went along with you when you got married? Is that
15: right? Lars and I go every place together. They don't do anything without Lars. Mr. Richland was nice about it. He doesn't seem to mind, Lars. Just a minute, they call him. Uh, Lars? Huh? Lars? Uh, Lars and I run the business together. The soda fountains we have. It's a long time. We have worked at it. Hard work.
14: Yes, ma'am. I guess
15: so. We make good living. Not easy, though. That's why it was so bad. Mr. Richland. $3,000 he took. Uh-huh. These are the police, Lars. They want to know about Mr. Richland.
13: How do you do? How are you, sir? Uh, you was no good. When they find him, they hit him. Now, the
10: $3,000 he got from you, ma'am, how did that work? I mean, did you give him the money, lend it to him? Just what was it?
15: When we came back from Mexico from being married, Mr. Richland and me and Lars, he said he was waiting for money from his bank in New York. Mr. Richland said that. He wrote me a check for $3,000. I gave him our check for 3000 Even Lars thought it was all right. Didn't you, Lars?
13: Yeah,
14: he was crazy. His check was no good. He beat him up, he punch him good. That's quite a bit of money, Miss Lindstrom. What kind of a story did he give you?
15: He would buy the tickets for a honeymoon trip. That's what he said. A long trip together. Romantic. Mr. Richland and me and Lars. He didn't mind Lars coming along either. Did he, Lars?
10: No, nah, he didn't. Now, this Ritland disappeared right after
14: he
15: cashed your check, Is that Yes, right? sir. He got the money and he was gone. Six days ago. We never heard him. I don't know why he did this to us. He thought he loved me. He thought he was my husband.
14: Mm-hmm. We haven't seen or heard anything of him since he disappeared?
15: Not me, nor ours. But maybe they know. That's why we call you officers. Yes, ma'am. We have this friend, Antonia M. Svenson. He met Mr. Richland once when he was here. Mm Swenson called us on the telephone. He said he saw Mr. Richland downtown going into the hotel.
14: Are you sure
10: it was Richland?
15: Yeah, he said he thought so.
10: How long ago did he see him? Uh, Last night. We got on the phone right away and talked to the friend of the Lindstrom's, James Swenson. He gave us the name and location of the downtown hotel where he thought he'd seen the suspect, Richland, the night before. Ed called the hotel and checked with the desk clerk.
14: Yeah, that's right. Fairly tall, wavy gray hair, fair complexion. Might be registered as John Richland. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay, we'll check with you later. Bye. Any luck. Guy registered as Harold Richland. Descriptions match. He's still there? Checked out this morning.
3: listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. Compare Fatima with any other
12: king-size cigarette. One, Fatima's length filters the smoke 85 millimeters for your protection. Two, Fatima's length cools the smoke for your protection. Three, Fatima's length gives you those extra puffs. 21% longer than standard cigarette size.
3: And in Fatima... You get an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of
12: Fatima quality. To show our confidence in Fatima, we make this money back guarantee to every king size cigarette smoker. Buy a pack of Fatimas. Enjoy
3: Fatima quality, extra mildness, and superbly blended tobaccos.
12: If you're not convinced Fatima is better than the king size cigarette you're now smoking, just return the pack in the unsmoked Fatimas before August 1st, 1952, and we'll give you your money back, plus postage. Fatima, Box 37, New York 1.
9: Remember, each king-size Fatima gives you an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of Fatima quality. Switch
12: to Fatima today. Best of all king-size cigarettes. (laughs)
10: Saturday, October 15th, 2.30 p.m. Ed Jacobs and I drove back downtown to the hotel where the bunco suspect, Richland, supposedly had been staying. The desk clerk definitely identified his mugshot and told us that the man registered as Harold Richland had checked out a few minutes before 9 a.m. that morning. No forwarding address. We examined the room he'd been staying in, talked to the residents and the employees of the hotel, but we failed to come up with a single lead as to the suspect's whereabouts. During the week that followed... We received three different kickbacks on the all points we'd gotten out on Richland. We checked each one of them out, but they failed to materialize into anything. We stayed on it. October 19th, Wednesday, 7.50 a.m.
14: Morning. Hi. What's doing? Charlie Frost called from forgery and went over to talk to him and came up with something on the Richland thing. Yeah, what's that? Picked up a woman last night name of Helen Stokes. Got a good-sized record, checks, Funko records. Yeah. Got her this time on a check beef. She wrote one for $3,500. Yeah, well, how's it tie-in with us? Check was made out to Harold Richland.
10: 8.15 a.m. We signed out, drove over to the main jail, and had the forgery suspect, Helen Stokes, brought to one of the interrogation rooms. She was a dark-haired, fairly attractive woman in her early 30s. As a bunco artist, she apparently knew her trade pretty well. She was relaxed and talkative. She told us Richland had introduced himself to her at a Palm Springs resort the week
14: before. When did the business of the check come up?
15: Soon as we got back in town, he gave me the story his money was in a New York bank. I played along with the gag. He wrote me a piece of wallpaper for $3,500. I did the same for him. What's the difference? Nobody hurt. Both checks, solid rubber.
14: Maybe you forget, ma'am. There's a law against it.
15: It's only a gag. I told you that. I would have loved to have seen his face when he found out the check was a phony. You don't think they're going to push the charge against me, do you?
10: No, we've already told you, miss. You wrote a bad one. There's a law against it.
15: I was only stringing him along. I knew his check was a phony, too. I didn't have anything to gain Look, suppose I help you find him. Will you give me a hand on this, see I get a break?
14: We can't make any promises. You cooperate, helps find Richland, be taken into consideration.
15: All right, you're on. You can tell lover boy I tipped you.
14: You know where Richland is now?
15: I can come close to it. How do you mean? I know where he'll be next week.
10: On further questioning, Helen Stokes told us that on one occasion, while she was at Palm Springs with Richland, she prowled his hotel room, went through his personal effects, and read his correspondence. She told us that she read one letter from a friend of Richland's inviting him for a visit the week of October 31st. She also noted Richland's answer accepting the invitation. She said the friend's name was Maurice Archer and that the letter came from an Ocean Boulevard address in the beach town of Venice. We went back to the office, ran Archer's name through r and found out that he had a previous criminal record of petty theft and grand theft. We located him at an Ocean Boulevard address and brought him in for interrogation. If there was any trouble, he wanted no part of it. After talking to him only a few minutes, he broke down and told us where we could find Richland, an address out near the end of Melrose Avenue. It was an apartment court. The suspect was registered in one of the rear cottages under the name of Reynolds. He wasn't at home. Ed and I went on stakeout inside the cottage. We waited. 6.30
14: p.m. Somebody coming in? Yeah. Hold
10: it right there, Mr. Police Officers.
14: What's this? Hands out in the open. Come on up. I don't understand this. I want to shake him down in?
13: Yeah. All right, he's clean. Look, I don't know what you want, officers, but this is a mistake. Your name Charles Reynolds? Reynolds? No, my name's Richland. That'll do. Let's go. Now, just a minute, please. What am I accused of? Who's accusing The Last pigeon you had lined up. Uh, she wanted us to tell you. Helen Stokes. Stokes. Phony dame. You can't believe her, officer. She's phony. She's nothing but a con artist. It's a good reason to believe her. What? Well, takes one to know one.
10: p.m. After checking through the cottage, Ed and I drove Richland downtown and took him to the interrogation room. He'd admit nothing. We called Miss Wagner, the sister of his first victim, and she was still in town. She agreed to come down to the office to confront the suspect. So did the second victim, Hagar Lindstrom, and her brother, Lars. Cars were set out to pick them up. At a special show-up, Richland was picked out as the guilty man. We took him back to the interrogation room. Miss Wagner was the first one called in. She again identified Richland, alias Reynolds, as the man who had married
13: and swindled her sister, Dorothy.
14: All right, Miss Wagner, that'll be all. Thanks very much for coming in.
7: Yes, all right. Thank you.
13: Look, I don't know that woman. I'm not trying to be stubborn, but I'm afraid you're wrong. I'm not the man you want.
14: Lindstrom's are outside, Joe, waiting. All right, bring him in. Miss Lindstrom? Mr. Lindstrom? Come in, please. Lindstrom.
13: Mr. Lindstrom.
15: Yeah, it's him. Yeah.
13: I don't know you. I've never seen you before.
15: You married me, John. You wanted to be my husband, you said that. Why did you want to hurt me? Sorry, I don't know her. You said for you and me and Lars to go on the boat, honeymoon around the world. You and me and Lars, you said all those things. Why did you want to hurt us?
13: Oh, no I... Is that enough for you? I don't know what they're talking about. They yeah, bait you up. Oh, take it easy, Mr. Lars. Lars. Lies. He said we all go around the world honeymoon. All right. All right. Get him out of here. Huh? Okay, Mr. Lindstrom. Thanks.
15: It's no good, Lars. Come.
13: Yeah. Thanks. Out this way, please. Yeah, find him. He hit him. Thank you very much.
15: There you
13: okay. are. All right. All right, Richland. You ready to give us a statement? All right, I'll tell you. You can't blame me for that one. though. You wouldn't have gone through with that deal yourself. Nobody would have. What's wrong? Nice-looking girl. Sure, I don't mean that. What do you mean? A big clown, her brother, Lars. Yeah? How'd you like to take that along on a
12: honeymoon? The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On
3: January 14th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 88, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Now, here is our
12: star, Jack Webb.
10: Thank you, George Fenneman. Friends, the reason Fatima can make the money back guarantee you heard earlier can be summed up in two words. Fatima quality. Just prove Fatima quality yourself. Just compare Fatima with any other king-size cigarette. Fatima's length filters the smoke... 85 millimeters cools the smoke, all for your protection. You get those extra puffs because Fatima is 21% longer than standard cigarette size. And Fatima gives you an extra mild and soothing smoke, plus the added protection of Fatima quality. Prove it today. Buy Fatima.
3: Frank Richland was tried and convicted of two counts of grand theft and three counts of forgery of a fictitious name. After serving his term in the state penitentiary at San Quentin, California, he is to be released to Chicago authorities for prosecution. Grand theft is punishable by imprisonment for not less than one, nor more than ten years. Forgery of a fictitious name is punishable by imprisonment from two to fourteen years. (laughs) Just Heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Heard tonight were Barney Phillips and Virginia Gregg. Script by Jim Moser. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking.
12: Fatima cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes. Has brought to you, Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. February 18th, here the Gala
13: City Service Silver Radio Jubilee on NBC.
1: Thanks for joining us for 1001 Radio Days, your home for Golden Age Radio, when radio was king. If you enjoyed tonight's show, please do take a moment and send us a review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon at 1001 Radio Days. And one note, don't forget to pick up 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back
0: soon. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives.